there really a new economy or are we looking at a, another stage of world capitalism? Cities have to be very careful about what they bargain for. This is the Dependance podcast. We address the complex issues of our time and how they manifest themselves in our cities and urban regions. From Rotterdam, the Netherlands, we interview writers, scholars and thought leaders. My name is Thijs Barendsen. And my name is Geert Maarsen. And today we will be discussing an urban phenomenon that we have been seeing, I think, in almost every city around the world. Yeah, and I'm not sure when it started exactly, but we've seen the rise and appearance of creative co-working spaces, of startup campuses, of tech hubs, of accelerators, of venture capitalist firms. It is what sociologist Sharon Zukin calls the innovation complex. And we will be talking about the origins, uh, the main actors and the species inhabiting this new ecosystem, and the often negative effects on the livability of our cities. And why mayors and city governments are so eager to get their own mini Silicon Valley and are willing to throw in millions of taxpayers' money to get there. And is there an alternative? Thanks for uh, being with us, Sharon Zukin. It's my pleasure. Where are you at the moment? In in the center of Manhattan? Uh, yes, I am in the center of downtown Manhattan. I live in Greenwich Village in a loft. And uh, since March of 2020, I have been working in, in uh, uh, what I like to call my study, which used to be my daughter's bedroom. Do you go out? Often in these oh, do past I go weeks out? and months. Yes, yes, yes. I would not. I would not be able to survive without going <laughs> out. But I rarely go outside of my neighborhood. People mm. who live in in uh, Lower Manhattan often joke that they never travel north of Fourteenth Street. But that turned out to be pretty much the the case for me, except uh, on some on some rare occasions. We're going to talk about uh, about about your book, and we might be talking about this 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 last uh, year as well. But we'll be talking about your book, and your book is about what you see when you go out, and and how the city is changing and has been changing over the last few years. Um, when did you, as a as a New Yorker, first notice that something something was was off, something was changing in 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 this city you have been living in your whole life? I guess right. Well, uh, no, uh, I'm not a native New Yorker. Excuse I'm a convert. <laughs> I'm, I moved to New York to go to university. I really, I came from another large city, Philadelphia, but New York always seemed to be the, the giant magnet for people who are interested in social change and culture and, uh, I don't know, at street life. So one of the, the, the poles of attraction of New York for me and other people is that it seems to be constantly changing. When you live in New York and when you really study the city, you understand that change occurs very, very slowly and against many forces of resistance so that uh, buildings do not spring up overnight and uh, neighborhoods do not disappear Within, a, within months, it really takes a very long time. But the changes seem to be 
instantaneous, maybe because of the shock of the new. I, I, I don't know. Maybe New York, contrary to all of our perceptions, is a city that adopts change reluctantly. Um, but that's the sort of thing that I do look for when, when I go out and walk around the streets. Now, many people probably think that I walk outside during the afternoon, I come back, and the next morning I have a book ready to explain what, what I've seen. That's not true. That's really not true. It took five years of research, pretty uh, painstaking and detailed research, and, and many interviews and and site visits to strange places like hackathons and meetups to uh, and meetings with with strange people like venture capitalists to write this book about tech in New York. Uh, but i I didn't really see the tech economy until about twenty fifteen in my neighborhood. And my neighborhood is one of the neighborhoods where you would see, uh, signs of tech companies because I live within walking distance of uh, uh, the main Google headquarters in New York and um, very close to the area that the street, Broadway, that uh, bisects the island of Manhattan and got the name Silicon Alley back in the 1990s. A name, by the way, that died, it just disappeared from the end of the 1990s when many of the dot-com firms failed to uh, about the 2010s when the name came back and everybody started using it again. So if you could see, um, if you could see the tech economy, you would have seen it in my neighborhood, but you didn't see it. And also, I live a couple of blocks away from Facebook's former office, uh, so you really had to you really had to had to follow these things to the degree that other people noticed something was changing. I think they noticed co-working spaces, but even five five or four or five years ago. Many people didn't know what a co-working space was. So um, if, if, you told, if I, I told people I was studying the tech economy, they would be a little bit confused in New York because you just don't see it. It's not like Silicon Valley where everybody knows tech is big and has been big since the electronics industry of the you know, post-World War II era. Um, the only other neighborhood in New York City where you would have noticed the change, if you knew what you were looking for, would have been along the North Brooklyn waterfront in Williamsburg and a little bit south of Williamsburg where the Brooklyn Navy Yard is and a couple of other old, really big warehouse and industrial complexes along the waterfront, like the one that's now called Industry City or the Brooklyn Army Terminal and Bush Terminal. Um, but these are all enclosed spaces, kind of like, uh, I don't know what the appropriate parallels are in Rotterdam, but Docklands areas in Amsterdam or Rotterdam or, or London or, or Bilbao, um, areas where the public just didn't go. There was no reason to go unless you had a job there. 
And often these industrial complexes had a very forbidding architecture, even windowless buildings for, for warehouses or machine building shops. And uh, the Brooklyn Navy Yard, for security reasons, had a big, it still still does have in, in most parts, uh, a big steel fence around it. So th- there was, again, there, there were no big flags and notices saying that the North Brooklyn waterfront was any kind of innovation district or tech district. And yet it was because out of sight, hundreds of firms were locating in Midtown and lower Manhattan and the Brooklyn waterfront, as well as in some other parts of the city, but very much under the radar. And Sharon, you write in the book that the innovation complex is not only a physical or an instrumental thing, but also psychological. Can you yes. can you maybe elaborate on that a little bit? What do, what do you mean by that? And why is it important to realize that? The word complex, as you suggest, has two meanings, uh, at least in, in architecture uh, and uh, urban design a, 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 and real estate. A complex is a set of buildings that are related in some way, like we talk about an office complex or maybe a laboratory complex, just an an assemblage, a set of related buildings. But a complex in a psychological sense is a uh, uh, some sort of ingrained um, feeling of a relationship to significant others. You could have an Oedipal complex, right? Or an inferiority complex or other kinds of complexes. I usually think of, a, of one of these complexes as something wrong, right? Not a, not a good thing. Uh, so in a psychological sense, cities have innovation complexes because they're in competition with other cities for investments and the jobs of the future, because these are what economic growth depends on. And even the survivability, the resilience of cities economically depends on developing new forms of economic activity. So um, the, the phrase, the innovation complex hit me when I was in Shanghai one day and a friend of mine who's an architecture professor invited me to visit a redevelopment site a little, a little west of the center of Shanghai. Uh, and we walked around and saw these new buildings, uh, very nice architecture, uh, uh, white buildings, not yet finished, uh, with a lot of green space for public events in the middle. And I was searching for some word to describe this kind of development. It struck me that the the mix of uh, um, co-working spaces and um, offices that were going to be dedicated to tech and creative firms and espresso bars and restaurants and and the uh, green spaces in the in the center. Uh, they reminded me of every other 
city that was trying to build up the tech economy. <laughs> I, I suddenly said, oh, this is an innovation complex because I, I, I just didn't know what else to call it. It wasn't, it was offices, but it was offices built for a certain purpose with a certain cultural flavor. And that's what I was, that's what I was going for. I had, this was related to some difficulties I had during the whole five years of interviews when I tried to tell people whom I was interviewing what I was writing about, especially when at the end of my research, I interviewed the former president of the New York City Economic Development Corporation, which is this city's main economic development agency who had been responsible for carrying out a lot of the initiatives to create the tech economy in New York after the 2008 financial crisis. And when I used the term new economy, he just looked at me and he said, is there really a new economy? I put this in the book because it was such a great quote. Is there really a new economy or are we looking at a, another stage of world capitalism. What is this? And if you had to answer that question for yourself? I'd say it's another stage of, of, of world capitalism. I read it as a, a fundamentally critical approach of this new form of capitalism. Um, but did it start out as a fundamentally critical approach of this new 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 complex this innovation complex that you started seeing yes <laughs> yes um uh during the early 2000s uh, a geographer named Nigel Thrift in Britain and a sociologist uh named Luc Boltanski in in France uh wrote about the new economy. I mean, there were many other people in business and technology who were writing about the new the new economy also, but they wrote about it as a new form of capitalism. They were reflecting on the um, the the dot com firms of uh, the 1990s. Those uh, what we used to call new media companies that created websites and other content for the new, newly commercialized internet that had grown out of military development. And um, Nigel wrote about the emotional qualities of uh, uh, how young workers were attracted to the new economy, how they became attached to it. Um, Luke wrote about the uh, uh, the aesthetic or the cultural values that had um, morphed from the counterculture of the 1960s through people like Steve Jobs and and, and other computer hackers into t- the ideology of tech firms and. Uh, I, I was very struck by the, the sense that digital technology in all of its apps and uh, permutations was an effort to restore the charisma of capitalism. And this became very, very clear 
after 2008. On the one hand, the 2008 financial crisis was so severe, certainly in in New York, uh, at least until the pandemic of 2020, that 2008 was just, you know, the huge shock of, of recent times, that uh, people in government and in business and in city planning really had to rethink how they operated and what the city was all about. On the other hand, the tech industry, starting in the 1990s with a, a blip for the dot-com boom, but increasingly in the early 2000s with the development of smartphones and the emergence of social media and the incredible demand for new apps to join all of these forms of digital technology, that culturally made tech work very appealing to young people. So the combination of economic crisis of the cities and of the economy in general and the economic success of companies like Apple and Facebook and the cultural uh, degeneration of the financial industry and the cultural emergence of uh, tech superheroes, people who seem to be self-made entrepreneurs like Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates and and, an older example, um, they became pervasive figures in the culture through books and movies and, of course, various forms of, of media. So uh, there, there. I, I, I became aware before I noticed it on the streets of New York. I became aware that the new economy was really a tech economy. And Sharon, um, you write in the book that what cities are envisioning today is nothing less than the urbanization of Silicon Valley. And later on in the book, you state that all cities share this vision. Um, I was wondering while reading that. How how did it become such a powerful narrative or discourse for for city governments to follow? Why did everybody jump on that bandwagon? Number one, they had no choice. There was no other path of economic development for cities to take. Number two, after the 2008 financial crisis, they really had no path to, to take. They were desperate to generate jobs. Um, number three, the 2008 financial crisis, I argue in the book, um, destroyed the illusion that the creative economy could be a viable growth engine for cities. There had been a decade of uh, adoption of creative city policies, certainly in the Netherlands and uh, around the world, well, in Europe and the U.S. It, it, it became clear by 2000, in 2008 that you know, artists and, and uh, musicians and third-wave coffee shops were not going to pr- provide enough jobs for city residents to survive or attract that much other investment. Um, those you know, those uh, uh, aesthetic amenities are necessary, but they're not sufficient to, 
to grow an economy. Um, remember that Richard Florida's very influential book about the rise of the creative class mistakenly counted all kinds of professionals as part of the creative class, like dentists and lawyers and, and accountants, college-educated people. Well, you know, maybe it's true that tech economies uh, need well-educated people, but doctors and, and dentists and accountants are not really doing creative work, although I can, I, you know, I think dimensions of their work are creative. So uh, it, it was perhaps an illusion all along that a creative economy could be the basis of economic growth for cities. The, these, these parties and stakeholders associated with the innovation complex, they all share this, this sort of utopian belief that they're not only doing capitalism, they're not only making money, but they're also making the world a better place, right? And this is something everybody wants. So uh, can, can I invite you to sort of dive deeper into the belief system, uh, the ide ideology that is at the core of this um, innovation complex? What do the, the, the people walking around in this, in this world, the, 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 the species inhabiting this uh, innovation complex, what do they believe in? I don't want to say that they really don't believe in innovation, but I invite you to think about what innovation means to different people. Maybe to me or to you or to, to other people who are listening to us, innovation means dramatically new ideas, especially in medicine and science, ideas that bring humans to the moon, uh, ideas that uh, save people's lives, uh, ideas that uh, will, will, will uh, enable this planet Earth to survive all of the human effects of toxicity. Yeah, all of those are part of innovation, but they are the idealistic part of innovation. Most of the people whom I have talked to, certainly in New York, define innovation as marketable ideas. There was indeed an excitement and always will be an excitement of creating something new, of solving problems. I've talked to many um, engineers and, and app developers who say, It, you know, you, you just get a rush, an emotional, you know, rush. You're, you're, you're in some kind of a high condition when you're working intensely to solve a problem, like a mathematician, right? To solve a problem or to build something. It always amused me when, or amuses me when people talk about building something in tech because they're not building, a, most times, a physical product, but building and tinkering in the 21st century is often, um, I won't say abstract, but it's often performed through symbolic operations. This innovation complex, you would consider it to be somewhat a pathological thing, right? Uh, pathological? Is that what you said? Pathological? As in, as in, as in unhealthy. <laughs> the, the, the. 
cities are suffering this innovation complex or well um I, I i would not go so far as to call uh to 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 call anything about it a pathology but uh i would say that cities have to be very careful about what they bargain for they have to be very careful for example about adopting smart cities policies which would which were related to Another thing I wanted to say in response to your last question, um, it's important for cities to adopt measures of flood control, energy saving, energy generation, um, uh, local supply chains and manufacturing, and also for the foods for food. So uh, cities are huge markets for smart cities technology. So cities, like everyone else, like individual users, sit at like national governments, we all have to be really, really careful to scrutinize any arrangement that we make, any contracts right, that we make with tech companies to make sure that it's a social contract as well as an economic contract. And without calling it um, patho pathology, patho pathological, <laughs> I, I, I can't even pronounce it. Um, you do state in the book that the more successful the innovation complex, the less livable the city becomes. Can you maybe tell us a little bit how that works? What what are these negative effects? Okay, well, uh, I, I think what I wrote applies more to San Francisco than to New York, but you see some of the same difficulties emerging in New York, San Francisco, Seattle, and um, even Austin and uh, Texas and Boulder, Colorado, smaller um, tech economies. Uh, number one, the sale of, of successful tech companies for a lot of money, we call them IPOs, initial public offerings of stock or ownership shares of these tech companies, can bring a, a, a lot of wealth into a local economy. I would say even more than tech wages, which are higher than wages in other sectors, are less important than the wealth that can flood into a local economy from the ownership of tech firms. When that wealth floods into the economy, it doesn't just buy meals in restaurants and support the, the workforce of restaurants. It doesn't just pay taxes to local government, although that's something that all companies like to escape. That wealth buys property, buys houses, buys apartments, which bids up the, the price of housing so that people can't afford to live in the city anymore. I mean, we've seen that for years before the emergence of the tech economy, where white-collar workers like uh, necessary workers, firefighters, police officers, uh, school teachers, they can't afford to 
live in the place, the city where they work, and even more so for um, household workers and healthcare workers. There is a lot of public money spent on bringing in these tech companies. One of the most illustrating examples might very well be the new Amazon headquarters that was supposed to have landed in Queens, but in the end didn't. Uh, can you explain what happened there? Okay, that that was a shocking um, experience. Although I would not have been shocked if I had known what I know now, which is that Amazon had already pursued the same sort of strategy of playing one city and one town against another for locating their warehouses. Let me briefly say what this process was. In 2018, Amazon announced that it had so much tech work that it was going to build a second North American headquarters somewhere in North America. I guess they included only the U.S. and Canada in that. Maybe they were, we're not thinking of Mexico, although Mexico is geographically considered in North America. In any event, uh, Amazon announced a competition for cities and towns to submit dossiers and videos to explain to Amazon why Amazon should choose their city or their town to build their second North American headquarters. What Amazon promised to bring to the town was 50,000 tech jobs, at least in some vague sense. What business people and government people understood from that was that Amazon was going to create 50,000 very well-paying jobs, jobs that paid above whatever the median wage is in that place. And the presence of Amazon would bring so much prestige to the town that other companies, other tech companies and maybe other kinds of companies would want to locate there. And there would be a tremendous synergy between the engineers working at Amazon and startups that need engineers to, to fill all of their jobs. So everything looked great about the, the, the possibility that Amazon would locate in a town or, or a city. And when you consider that many cities are economically stressed, if not in extreme uh, uh, distress throughout North America, cities like Detroit, for example, or Newark, New Jersey, or you know, some of the mid Midwestern cities that have lost industrial jobs as factories have shut down. Um, Amazon seemed like a salvation. I will just say in parentheses that this is exactly how Amazon warehouses appear, um, not maybe in big cities, but in the deindustrialized towns of, of, uh, of North America and probably Europe. So um, 237 cities and towns submitted portfolios to Amazon arguing for 
Amazon to locate in their place. You know, it was it was like a beauty pageant or any kind of contest where people are screaming, "Pick me, pick me!" Yeah, yeah. and uh, that's what cities did. I was, I was, and they were offering what was on the table. They they were offering. Well, they they were just offering their presence, their name. And 50,000 jobs. Yeah, That's exactly. I saying. know. But the, the other party at the other end of the table, they were offering. Oh, what were they all offering? Well, it depended because Amazon uh, insisted that all of the terms of the offers remain secret. Um, Amazon also does this with their warehouse locations. Whenever Amazon negotiates with local governments, they require those local governments to sign non-disclosure agreements. That is, they are legally obligated not to tell anything that's in the negotiations. So nobody knew, but you know, everybody figured out that the other cities and towns were offering benefits. What kinds of benefits are offered to companies, to any company, not just Amazon? Uh, well, anything that anything that a local government can do, they will promise to do from building an, a, a, an exit or an entrance entrance to or exit from an interstate highway to uh, cheap land or free land uh, or uh, subsidies for training the workforce or training the workforce directly. Almost anything that a city or town government can do for a business they promised to do for Amazon. And some cities offered, you know, quite, uh, you know, uh, uh, billions of dollars that they quite honestly would find hard to raise. And that was the offer that was put on the table by New York as well, wasn't it? Well, New York did not offer as much as, much as a, a couple other cities, but New York did this too. So uh, Amazon finally decided to make the decision like King Solomon to divide the, the new corporate headquarters into two, into two locations, one just outside Washington, D.C., in, in an area that, of Virginia that is already rich with tech companies and uh, a place where residents, because of the tech companies and a lot of government contractors, have uh, very high um, salaries uh, of, of uh, incomes of, of, of residents. Yeah, and did they deliver the 50,000 high-paid Uh, well, wait a second, wait a second. Well, all, uh, automatically, the number of jobs was reduced by half, half of which would be placed in Virginia, and the other half would be placed in Queens, New York, uh, one of the five boroughs of, of New York City. And I found online in one statement an acknowledgement that a lot of these jobs would not be tech jobs at least the way people understand tech jobs to be engineering jobs. Uh, but a lot of the jobs that would have been created in New York would have been in marketing and advertising and human relations and, you know, I don't know, other kinds of jobs. Um, the New York City uh, government was very eager to get tech jobs very eager to build up that area of, of Queens, so eager that they canceled plans to build housing on part of that lot, part of that land that they were now going to give to uh, Amazon. Uh, 
and um, New York City was was particularly eager to connect Amazon to training and hiring residents of a nearby public housing complex, which is very large. It's the biggest public housing um, development in the United States. So there there are thousands of people living there. But Amazon would only promise, maybe they didn't even promise, but they only talked about hiring 30 people from among the thousands who work at this public housing project. So all in all, the, the, uh, the contract that was emerging did not look very good. And when some of these conditions began to become known, local elected officials got really angry. Remember, the non-disclosure agreements prevented any body outside of the economic development officials of the city and the state from knowing what was in the offer. So there were, you know, 50 city council members and and a number of New York state legislators who represented Queens who were furious that they had not been consulted on the deal to Amazon, even though initially they had supported making an offer to Amazon. But because of the, the, the secrecy, or as we like to say, the lack of transparency of the negotiations, and even more so because of the huge amount of money, like $3 billion that was offered to a trillion-dollar company whose CEO at the time, Jeff Bezos, was the richest man in the world. You know, this was you know, very angering to elected representatives. But what really broke the, the, the deal was that um, workers at the Amazon warehouse in another part of New York City talked publicly about the very harsh conditions of work in the warehouse. We know this now. I mean, we do, this has been widely reported now, but at the beginning of 2019, it was not so widely known. And the workers said, we, some of the workers said, we would like to form a union, but Amazon's position is against their workers forming a union, wherever those workers are, whether they're white collar workers or warehouse workers. And as soon as Amazon confirmed that they did not support their workers forming a union or joining a a labor union, the mayor of New York City was embarrassed. And he said, well, I no longer support this deal. It was not a surprise that Amazon did not support unions. But, you know, this this became such a public issue that the mayor withdrew his support. Yeah. What did what did this moment mean for you as a as a researcher? Um, well, personally, I had nearly finished writing the book, and I, I, I was upset because I had to <laughs> write about this deal now. <laughs> but that's very selfish of, of, of me. Um, as a researcher, it raised a lot of questions. And as a, a, a tax-paying New Yorker, it mm-hmm. raised a lot of questions, too, about how far the city government would go in bowing to the demands of business, particularly how far would the city government go in accepting the demands of big tech companies? This is a question that has only been strengthened 
by the COVID-19 pandemic because the big tech companies have become the biggest winners in the post-pandemic, the pandemic and the post-pandemic um, economies. And this is a big question. I assume there's no quick fix to this, but if you if you had to advise city governments, the new mayor of New York or the current mayor of Rotterdam, to to benefit from all this, to to steer this in an in a, in a different direction, this this new urban economy that we that we talked about, what would you advise him or her? I would tell mayors to look very carefully at what they offer to individual companies. I would think that mayors have a great interest in joining with other mayors to make a compact, to make an agreement. We will not offer subsidies <laughs> to, uh, to big businesses. Now, maybe if cities had solidarity, they would they would be be stronger. How optimistic are you that uh, cities are going to change something about it? How how optimistic are you that they can lose their innovation complex, their their psychological need to to join the party, just like every other city around the globe? The innovation complex is not going away. Uh, the smaller cities are trying even harder now to uh, attract individuals and companies that started in the major tech hubs. Um, it's unclear how successful they will be, but again, I think that uh, they have no choice and uh, economies are adopting digital technology. They have to. There isn't, um, we're not going back to as much as I might like it. I, we're not going back to paper and pencil economy. Yeah, that's, it strikes me in your answer, in, in the book, but in your answers as well, that you're sort of, you, you, you're, you're accepting it as a, as a given You're, you're numerous of numerous of times you are saying that they have no alternative, while I, as a reader, uh, during the book, got more angry and angry about these stupid cities and municipalities and mayors fighting for the same bone. Um, well, the question is: Are there going to be multiple bones? Uh, but also the, you know, we haven't talked and we don't have time to talk about, uh, robotics and automation and, uh, the need for human labor. Um, these are all forces that are pressing down on, on everybody. We, we, we don't, we, we, we live in a vortex of uncertainty and, uh, the, the only thing that seems sure is that people are adopting digital technology to do anything more and more. So, you know, uh, I, I accept that that's a fact, but how we deal with that fact, that's something we have to fight for. You were listening to the Dependance podcast. Our editors are Shereman Diaz, Fari Tabarki, Geert Maarsen en mijzelf Thijs Barendsen. Music composition and recording and mixing is done by Plak Studio. 
and the graphic design is by Studio Spaas. The Dependance is kindly supported by the Creative Industries Fontanel and the municipality of Rotterdam. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, subscribe to our podcast, and check our website, thedependance.eu, for new episodes and live events. And let us know who we should talk to next.